like to come back to 2 Corinthians once again. Now we want to move a little further in our studies. And we've been seeing, I think, a wonderful picture painted by the Apostle Paul of what the Christian life looks like. And we've seen that there are struggles. We've seen that, that there are also many victories as we live the Christian life. And what we've seen so far, we're going to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 4. But just to set the context, what we've seen so far, Paul started in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, in this section that we're looking at, with the idea of a procession to glory. A procession to glory. Our Lord Jesus leading us in triumph. God leading us through Christ into triumph. Now that's a triumph. We may not always see it. or We may not always understand it. But we need to by faith apprehend it and believe it. Christ is working. If we're, we're in fellowship with him and we're walking with him... And he is always leading us in triumph. That's what the verse says, 2.14, right? And that's how this section began. And then we saw the other night, in, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2, down through verse 6 of chapter 3, that there is sufficiency only in God, the provision of the Holy Spirit, right? For those of us who are saved, God gives us his Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't emphasize it so much here, but also eternal forgiveness of sins. Those are both coupled together with the new covenant blessings we read about in Hebrews chapter 8 and in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Both of these prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So the Lord is leading us in procession. He's made provision. The sufficiency isn't in anything in ourselves and if we really know ourselves, we're thankful for that because we are weak. When we're talking about this great cosmic battle that's going on between our Lord and the devil, and, and we are weak, we need to see that. We need to see that we need to have our spiritual armor on. We need to put that armor on consciously every day because the the Roman soldier, he didn't sleep with the armor on, right? He took the armor off. He wouldn't sleep very well. He'd probably get a crick in his neck and a sore back with that big body cast thing he wore. But, but he would put that armor on. And I can imagine as he put each piece on, he thought about how this is going to protect him from this type of weapon. And this is going to protect him from that weapon. And finally that helmet, right? And, and Paul uses that picture in Ephesians 6. It's a good way to think about preparing for our day. And then we've looked at, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3 down through verse 6 of chapter 4, the process of transformation. And that the work that the Holy Spirit is doing now in us, He's molding us. He's transforming us, to use the word in 3.18, right? He's transforming us. Same word he uses. It occurs in four, three other places. Four places altogether in the New Testament. The other three places, Romans 12, 2, same idea. 
being transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewed by what? The Word of God. It renews us and it molds us and transforms us. Parallel to this verse here, 318 of 2 Corinthians. And then, of course, it's translated transfigure in Matthew 17 and Mark 9, referring to our Lord on the holy mount when he ascended and was transfigured. It's the same word as transform. And in the transfiguration, the light shone from, it was there within Christ, it was just allowed to come out, right? It wasn't a light shining from the outside onto him. Like some of the movies I've seen that, that TBN and these have put on and try to show the transfiguration, that suddenly the light from the sun hit him in a certain way on his garments and made him shine. No, no, the light was inside, he was letting it come out. And that's what he's going to be doing in us in this verse 18 of chapter 3. He has started, the Holy Spirit is in us. He wants to come out. <laughs> he wants to be manifest through us to this world, and we have to let him. That's where that whole surrender and yielding, brokenness, and all of that comes in. It's wonderful. There's nothing like it in this world when we really understand it and participate in it process of transformation and that brings us to verse 7 of chapter 4 where now he moves into talking about our frailty in this great work and the power of God and I'm calling it perspective on our sufferings and that will go all the way down through verse 10 of chapter 5 you notice in verse 7 of chapter 4, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, <laughs> clay jars. You go down to verse 16 of chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. You realize that? Today you perished a little bit more than what you did yesterday. You've been perishing since you came into this world. And it's just an onward thing. It's the corruption of sin in our bodies that's working. And it moves at different rates and in different capacities of decay in each one of us. But that's what it's doing. It's ultimately going to end up in total corruption. These bodies. And then you notice in verse 1 of chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. <laughs> you get the picture of what he's doing here? Each one of those marks off a division in this section, and you can see the direction he's going, isn't he? He's talking about the perspective we should have on our life in this world, in these bodies. So this section particularly deals with our present ministry for the Lord and our personal growth in the Lord. What is our perspective? What's our perspective on our life? What's our perspective on the world or worldview, if you will? And so I would submit then that verse 7 of chapter 4 down through verse 15, the power of in this ministry is of God, is what I'm calling that. In 4.16 to 18, the perspective on afflictions. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. And then 5.1 through 10, preparation 
for glory. God is using all of this suffering to prepare us for glory. Did you know that? <laughs> Sometimes we wonder about that, don't we? See, this is something the world doesn't understand. I didn't understand it before I was saved. Suffering was something that you ran away from. And if you, if you felt any kind of suffering coming on, you would do everything you could to get away from it, right? And that's how most of the world lives today. That's why, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have this massive marketplace that they can work with because they got people convinced that this is the only life there is. But this isn't the only life there is. The Bible's clear about that. The real life is the life to come. This one's the temporary one. That's the permanent one. <laughs> so if you're of an accounting mind and you're making an assessment about where you're going to invest your time, talents, resources, what are you going to invest it in? Something that's temporary and going to fall apart or something that's permanent that's going to last on to eternity? Which one do you think is a wise investment? I know I've made my decision. But that's what it comes down to, and that's what Paul is trying to urge these Corinthians to see. So he begins here in verse 7, down through verse 15. We've said the power is of God. We have this treasure. By the way, the treasure, I think, is the Lord Jesus himself. Some would say maybe it's the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that's, that's not off given the context of what he's talking about. But particularly verse 6, immediately before this, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. And we look into his face by faith. We're not seeing his face yet. Paul did. But we haven't seen his face yet. Peter makes that clear. Whom having not seen ye love. Right? And rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We are going to see him. But by faith we see him in the scriptures. And the scriptures manifest him to our hearts. And beloved, I believe that the interaction as the Holy Spirit reveals the Lord Jesus in the scriptures in some respects is probably better than seeing him physically. In some respects. Because we can really allow him to focus on our inner being. You know, we get, it, we get focused on the external so much. The internal part of us is the real soul, the real part of us that's, that's so wonderful. So we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You almost, it's almost a paradox, isn't it? This treasure in a clay jar. Have you ever worked around clay jars? You know how fragile they are? They fall off, they, they crack. In the first century where Paul lived, when a clay jar was broken, that was it. They didn't use it for anything else. It became a potsherd, maybe to scrape enough ashes or something like that. But they didn't use it for anything else. Not like the metal ones where they could repair it. Or porcelain ones that could be repaired. The, the clay ones, they, were, they just became useless. They're just a clay jar. Some of us sometimes have to be reminded of that, you know. That we are so fragile. 
I was challenged to go on a bicycle ride up in Chicago a few weeks ago, and I felt how fragile this body was. We went on a 41-mile ride. I haven't been on a bicycle in seven years. I used to do 30 miles back in the 80s, but I was a lot younger back then. And, wow, it about killed me. <laughs> but I kept thinking I was already studying this portion. I kept thinking what the Lord's revealing to me here, this, this clay jar. Maybe it had some strength at one time, but it, you know, that, that wanes, that goes away. And, and why would God put such a rich treasure as the person of his son in such a weak vessel as you and me? He tells us in the second half of the verse, why? That the excellence of the power, the power of what? The power of God and the gospel. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Which will then in verse 15 will cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. See? All the world will know that it's not because of anything in us that people get saved. Or that Christians grow and get sanctified and edified. Or that people are comforted in their time of distress because the Holy Spirit ministering through us. It's not about us, is it, beloved? Like he said in verse 5, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves servants for Jesus' sake. That is a perspective, beloved. That's a perspective that is not natural. It's not natural thinking to think like this. You have to be trained to think like this by the Holy Spirit. I do too. That's what renewing of the mind means. Our natural thinking is self is everything and God needs me and he needs my talents. And without me, I don't know how he could do it. That's what self wants us to think. And that's, that was Satan's idea way back when he fell, wasn't it? The anointed cherub who covers, he's right there, one of the cherubim, right there at the throne of God. But it wasn't enough for him. He had to be God. And of course, he led Adam and Eve to believe that same thing. Paul goes on to describe just a little bit in verse 8. Four paradoxes, four paradoxical phrases here, right? We are hard-pressed on every side. We are perplexed. Thirdly, we are persecuted. Fourthly, we are struck down. All of those look like failure, don't they? Hard pressed. It's like the, the olive press. The Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. Our Lord suffering there. Just being pressured by circumstances in our lives. We are hard pressed. Paul will describe that a little bit more later on in the letter. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Why? Because God protects, preserves us. He's in complete charge of us. We are perplexed. Oftentimes this happens in the Christian life in ministry, doesn't it? We work in a particular direction, and we don't understand why it's not given the results. We work for many years in soccer ministry, and we think it ought to be this kind of result, and it's this kind of result. But we have to leave that with the Lord. It's His work. So we don't go into despair. We don't get discouraged about it. We press on. Thirdly, we're persecuted. Now, 
as brother, one of the brethren prayed. We, we don't experience that too much in this country, although there are different forms of persecution. Physical persecution is not the only form, you know. Persecution of being isolated or ostracized or made fun of at work, things there, those are forms of persecution too, if it's because we're Christian and we're identified with Jesus Christ, of course. He said we're persecuted. Paul will describe his were severe, but not forsaken by God. See, not abandoned in our persecution. You think of him in that jail in Philippi, he and Silas there, you know, in chains, backs all cut open, lacerated from the whipping, and they're bleeding. Some believe that they, they stretched them out on the floor, on the dirt floor, so that you know, all that dirt's getting into their back, all kinds of infection, and what are they doing? They're singing hymns. Let me, in on, let me let you in on something, beloved. That's not natural. That's not natural. That's supernatural. During the time of Nero, just a few years after Paul's persecution there in Philippi, when they took human beings, Christians, and put them on poles and lit them up to light his gardens, those Christians were singing hymns too and giving praise, singing psalms and giving praise to God. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That's divine enablement, right? Persecuted but not forsaken. God will not forsake us. And then fourthly, he says, struck down but not destroyed. He described, he'll describe some of those later. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. You see? It's interesting. You notice he uses the phrase, the dying of the Lord Jesus. Usually he will say the death of the Lord Jesus, won't he? But here he puts it in the form of dying. In what sense was it the dying of the Lord? I think it's a dying to self. Our Lord did not elevate himself he didn't live for self at all everything he did was to the glory of the father didn't he he said even every word i speak is from the father not me it was total surrender something we'll never achieve in this life as christians but we should aspire to it and by the help of god we will make progress in that He's talking about in our bodies. So this is a picture of what he'll describe in Romans 6 through 8 in sanctification, carrying about always the dying of the Lord, but that the life of the Lord may be manifested. See, when we die to, the, to self, the life of the Lord Jesus becomes more and more manifest in our mortal bodies he's talking about. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see what I mean by perspective? Is this your perspective? Is this mine? This is normal Christian life perspective here. So then death is working in us, but life in you, he says to the Corinthians. Paul says, I brought the gospel to you in Corinth at risk to my own life. Death's working in me, but because I brought the gospel, you got saved, you trusted in Christ, life's working in you. <laughs> Another set of paradoxical statements, right? 
And since we have the same spirit of faith, verse 13, according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke. That's a quotation from Psalm 116. And it's a powerful psalm of continuing to trust the Lord, to magnify the Lord in the face of suffering and affliction. Read the psalm. That's the psalm that says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And, and if it's David, that's right. We're not sure who wrote it, but it seems to be David. But whoever wrote it was near death, apparently, and they're living for the Lord. And yet they're living a life of victory and trust and exalting the Lord. It's a great psalm. Paul just quotes one verse out of it because he's relating to that same idea that the psalmist, we also believe and therefore speak. We believe in the glory of God. We believe in the resurrection to come. And that's why we feel confident assurance to speak about it and to continue to serve him and continue to give out the gospel. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Now he includes them, see. We're all going to be presented to the Lord Jesus together. That's kind of the theme of verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. So all of this combines together the same idea. The resurrection. Being presented before the Lord together as a church. And Paul emphasizes that. For all things are for your sakes. That grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. The spreading of the gospel is the spreading of God's grace. Grace means what? Unmerited favor, right? Favor of God that we could never merit, we could never buy it, we could never earn it or deserve it, but he gives it anyway. I love that about our Lord. Therefore, verse 16, we're saying this 16 to 18 now, perishing yet being renewed, this picture of perspective and affliction. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's the same idea of 2 Corinthians 3.18, isn't it? That from one glory to another, being transformed into the same image, the image of the Lord Jesus. That's the renewing of the inner man. So whatever is happening to our outer man, the inner man can, can continue to be renewed if we let it. I remember a few years ago, some of you remember Sister Florine Alvary, and I got to know her over the years coming over here. And one of the brothers I work with in Louisiana knew her way back in the time frame of World War II down at Ebenezer uh, Gospel Hall here in the Miami area. So we got to know her, and I remember Brother Bob and, and Judy and, and I went to see her when she was, was near death. She was very sick. She only lived a few weeks after that visit. I happened to be in town at that time, and I wanted to see her, and she wanted to see us. And it was a great time, but uh, you remember it, Bob. I mean, what, what, a, what a joy. She, was, she ministered to us. I mean, we read scripture to her. We prayed with her. And she, could, she didn't have much energy. She was dying of cancer. She couldn't talk much. But, but she, had, she was still being renewed in the inner man while she was dying on that deathbed. 
Amen. Would you agree with me? That was a testimony, brother. That was what I observed. So you see, it's possible. That's within reach of any one of us. You say, well, what if I get the diagnosis, the C word, you know? What am I going to do? Or what if I find out I've got two weeks to live, I've got a heart condition that's irreparable, what am I going to do? What you're going to do is, you're going to keep renewing yourself each of those days you got left. <laughs> because your inner man can be renewed even though the outward man is perishing. It's going to perish. And we can't stop that. But we can participate with the Spirit in that inward renewal work that he wants to do. For our light affliction, Paul says, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You see what he's doing? He's using words of contrast. He says, our light affliction, and then our weight of glory. He says, but for a moment, temporary, contrasted with eternal. And when you read what Paul went through, and you'll see a list in chapter 6, we'll see another list in chapter 11, and you read that list of what he went through, I don't think anyone in this room will ever go through, including me, will ever go through what he went through. And he calls that light affliction? If he calls that light affliction, beloved, then nothing that you and I are going through is heavy affliction. You see, it's a perspective, isn't it? It's a perspective on... Suffering in this life. It's light affliction compared to what? Compared to the weight of glory when we're glorified in our glorified bodies. And see, God wants to use that suffering. That's what he's trying to say. He wants to use that suffering to prepare us for what we'll be doing in eternity. Now, that's a mindset. That we have to receive by faith. That's what the word teaches. It teaches that all the way through. Even in the Old Testament it taught that, didn't it? David began to get a handle on it. You read some of his psalms. But there are a lot, many, even Christians in the church, who haven't got a hold of that. It's so important to see it. This world is passing away. The afflictions are going to pass away with it. It's momentary, but it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. One of the commentaries brings up a good point on this. It's not the, not the idea of we don't look at the things that are visible, but the things that are invisible. As if the life to come is invisible. The life to come is more real than this life is. It's just not seen yet. Okay? You may want to make a note of that in your Bible. I've done that in mine. It's just not seen yet. We have the seen and we have the not seen yet. But the not seen yet is the eternal. What we see is temporary. Beloved, do you believe that? Do you young people believe that? You haven't had time to think about it, I know. But I, I challenge you, I encourage you to think about it. It will change your whole life. When you begin to realize that all of this is temporary and passing, especially, like Brother was praying, especially when you look at the governments of our world and the economy of our world, how can you think that any of this is going to survive very long? There's only one man that's going to fix it for seven years. And then there's another man that's coming that's going to fix it for all eternity after him. The Antichrist will come and do it for a little while, but the Christ will come and fix it right forever. 
That's what the Bible tells us. So he says, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let me just quickly run through 5, 1 through 10, if I may. I know there are verses that are so precious and powerful, but they fit with the flow of thought of what we've seen already. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, a tent is temporary, a building is permanent. You see what he's doing? He's playing off of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the, the Solomon's temple, right, which became the permanent dwelling of God. He says, this tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, made by God. For in this we groan, in this tent, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed... Having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. That is, in a disembodied state. To me, this is fascinating. Paul looks at this and says that he doesn't, he begins to see that, he, in chapter 1, he told us he was, the sentence of death was written upon him, right? He, he, up till then, in 1 Thessalonians 4, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul puts himself with those who will be alive at the rapture, right? We who are alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord. But here in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he begins to realize it's possible that he will have to go through the article of death and that the rapture will follow after his death. This is what we see here. And Paul doesn't like that. Why? Because for Paul, service for the Lord is such a privilege. It's everything, but you can't serve the Lord unless you have a body. <laughs> service is done in a body. So Paul was hoping that his serving would continue in this life, in this body, and then that he would be raptured and go to get a glorified body and continue to serve. There wouldn't be that gap of a disembodied state, which is what many in the church, that's the place most in the church are today, right? They're absent from the body, they're present with the Lord, but they don't have a body, they haven't been glorified yet we're all going to be glorified together at the rapture according to the bible so you see what paul's doing that's what he's saying here when he refers to having been clothed for we who are in this tent grown verse 4 being burdened not because we want to be unclothed but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life see that we would that he would bypass that disembodied state and go straight from mortality to immortality at the parousia, at the rapture. Now he who has pre prepared us for this very thing is God. Who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee or down payment or earnest contract on the fact that it's going to happen. It's true. Do you have the Holy Spirit tonight? There are, there are ways you can find out, you know. And if you have the Holy Spirit, it's because you're born again that you have the Holy Spirit, Right? And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the down payment on eternal life, the glorified body to come. And I can't wait. Because I think it's going to probably look like what we looked like when we were 18, 19, or 20. But who knows? We don't know for sure. But that, at the time when we were at the epitome, you know, at wherever that peak of, of strength and vitality is, it's probably different for most of us. So we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. 
that is absent from his physical presence, not absent from him inside our hearts, right? Because he's there in the Holy Spirit, but absent from his physical presence. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We haven't seen him yet. We haven't seen the unseen world yet. It's interesting. The Apostle Paul had. <laughs> He'll tell us in chapter 12, when he went to the third heaven, he got a glimpse of it. So he was in a position of special privilege. We don't get that. But aren't you glad he saw it and came back and he's telling us he saw it? It's really there. John saw it too, I believe, in the book of Revelation. God enabled him to divinely see the heavenly Jerusalem. And he wasn't just writing something he saw in his imagination. He was writing something he physically saw by divine enablement. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I want to be present with him. Do you want to be present with him? You want to see the one who died for you? Therefore, verse 9, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to please him, to live for him, to live in a way that pleases him. For we must all before, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that brings us to the summary of this section. He'll move on in verse 11 to describe the ministry of reconciliation. But he concludes it with the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. Now we combine this statement with what we have in 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans chapter 14, and we see that it is an opportunity not, there's not going to be any condemnation. He says things done in the body, whether good or bad, the good things that we've done in the body are going to be rewarded. Matthew 25, even a cup of cold water given at a critical time to someone who's suffering persecution and putting our life at risk because we're doing it, the Lord's aware of that. He's going to reward it. The things that we didn't do, that would be sins of commission as well as sins of omission. That would be sins of thought as well as sins of act. You say, well, I didn't ever do anything like that. Yeah, but if you thought about it, you did it. According to Matthew 5 and 6, right? So we need to be real careful about our self-assessment and self-judgment as 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we should do, right? Confessing those sins, setting them aside. And we're going to, for the things that we didn't do that please the Lord, we're going to suffer loss, loss of reward, but not loss of salvation. All three of the passages that deal with that Make that very clear. It's not an issue at the judgment seat of Christ of salvation. We already have it. You already have eternal life right now. It wouldn't be eternal life if it wasn't eternal, would it? It's a matter of rewards. And that just tells us how gracious our Lord is. He doesn't need to reward us, beloved. He's already rewarded us by saving us, didn't he? But he's such a giving God that he wants to reward those who have given themselves for him in this life. I hope you'll think about that some more tonight. Me too. And we'll think about the one who died that we might live. 
and how that can impact our own life and decisions. So, Father, we thank you for your word and for the encouragement it gives us. And we recognize these challenges to perspective on sufferings are so different than anything we see in this world. And we thank you, Lord, for the indwelling Holy Spirit that reveals these marvelous truths to us. We thank you, O oh Lord. Help us to meditate on them, to consider them, to process them in each one of us in our own minds, in our own ways, according to our own calling. And Lord, protect us on the roads as we travel home tonight. We do give you thanks for the privilege of prayer tonight and the privilege of opening our hearts to your word. We ask these blessings in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.